This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And it's great to have you along on this Wednesday afternoon. Between now and the headlines at half past 12, after those shocking reports of sexual assaults and harassment on mine sites, there are some hopes improved working and living conditions might see cultural change in the industry. We'll get into that shortly here on the Country Hour. And also, a little later in the show, we're going to talk about sheep and lamb prices because they dropped at the Catanning sale this morning and some are predicting these lower prices are going to be around for at least the next few months. But what's going to happen if or when the live sheep trade ends? The ACCC, the competition watchdog here in Australia, has concerns the meat processing companies are going to have too much power in that scenario. But sheep and farmer and manager of the Catanning sale yards, Rod Bushell, doesn't think the sky is going to fall in. I'd be surprised if they um, they really murder the industry because, I mean, they've got to exist as well. So they don't want the numbers. I mean, it might be tough now for the next six months or so, but I'm certain that they won't let it get to a point where a lot of people are getting out of sheep because down the track that's going to affect them. Really keen to get your thoughts on this. Do you agree with Rod? Uh, the text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Shoot through a text. Let me know what you're thinking because today you're going to hear from Mick Keogh. He's with the ACCC. He's put in a submission to the panel that's working on trying to find the best way to transition out of the live sheep trade by sea. And Mick says... The ACCC does have some concerns about the lack of competition among meat processors once the trade comes to an end. That text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through and have your say here on the Country Hour this afternoon. Seven past twelve. And starting the show today with the well, in Geraldton, because the mayor of the town in this part of WA is pretty excited about the news you heard on the show yesterday that a South Korean energy consortium plans to build a green ammonium plant using renewable hydrogen near Geraldton. Perth-based company Progressive Green Solutions is partnering with two Korean companies for this huge renewable energy project. Now, the aim of it all is to build an ammonium and power project at Nungaloo, just southeast of Geraldton. Progressive Green Solutions has just entered into an exclusive negotiation period with the WA government. Geraldton Mayor Shane Van Stein says if this unique project goes ahead, it is going to create hundreds of jobs, but it will also change some of the farming landscape in the Midwest. Look, just over a year ago, PSG and their consortium partners, the state-owned power utility Camipo, as well as Samsung CNT, a global construction company, put forward what they call the Midwest Giga Energy Project. That would see around five gigawatts of electricity uh, produced out east through you know, as far out as Mount Magnet and beyond on station country and being piped uh, via DC cable into Nangaloo to try and create uh, green hydrogen and enable more industry in there. It uh, does require significant volumes of water, so looking at desalination options as well on the coast. So it's a very ambitious project. The early numbers are $10 billion or more, but um, still the state government has agreed to give them some working period 
uh, to, to look at the land at, at Nangaloo and work out uh, how best a project of that scale could possibly fit within the existing Nangaloo envelope. We've just heard that the state government has signed this exclusive negotiation period today, which you've referred to. Does that, in your mind, give this project more weight? Do you actually think we will see it off the ground and operating at Nangaloo? Look, this is a project that proposes to produce more power than the entire Perth metropolitan area, has an ambitious time frame of actually exporting by 2028-2029. So we've seen uh, very large projects from BP, Fortescue uh, Industries as well, looking at Okaji. But what's interesting with the Koreans uh, in this consortium is they believe they cannot wait for Okaji. Uh, it is too slow uh, to come online. Signing exclusive agreement, we know that Strike Energy recently their term for dealing in that land had expired and they removed back down to Arrowsmith down at Dongra. Bring up this land, a lot of proponents have looked at the large, last remaining parcel of land in Nangaloo. It's positive and noting the agreement is for a six-month option for the six-month after that. Um, it certainly shows uh, some aggressive timelines by the Koreans and we'll see where that leads to. So this essentially would be going where Strike had plans for its harbour project or Haber project? So this is the exact same land that uh, Strike Energy looked for uh, the Haber projects in inside Nangaloo, although it does require a little less land uh, than Strike required, uh, opening up the potential for green uh, steel to be produced, noting that people like Sanjeev Gupta had been uh, in Geraldton over the last week as well. Kawasaki Heavy Industries been uh, in Geraldton as well. A lot of people have been uh, floating around, but more looking at, at Okiji in that, in that regard, but still... Uh, trying to see what can best go in at Nangaloo and what is the last large strategic industrial area of land available in Geraldton. Mm. So if this does get off the ground and there is a plan to export ammonia from Nangaloo to the port, what sort of infrastructure would be needed there? The current proposal involves uh, piping the ammonia probably under refrigeration uh, out through the uh, Midwest ports. The logistics behind that are a matter uh, above my pay grade and a matter for uh, the Midwest ports uh, would require the transfer of electricity from significantly east into Nangaloo. And again, uh, water is a key requirement of making hydrogen. You split the water to make hydrogen. Uh, where that water will be drawn from, and then of course the hypersaline water being discharged needs to be considered as well. But these projects also firm up uh, our city's water and power supplies due to the, just the sheer volumes they're talking. So we know Geraldton does need um, you know, water firming in the next 20 to 30, 40 years. Uh, it certainly needs power firming and as well as export capability back into the Swiss. So we'll see what all this looks like as multiple government agencies and multiple proponents uh, all fight for to be the first. We've seen uh, BP, we've seen Fortescue, uh, all big players globally, Copenhagen partners. Uh, obviously, this consortium of Koreans with PSG, Comipo and Samsung CNT are significant global players in this space. What's unique about this project is they're also the uh, entities that will offtake the ammonia. This isn't just selling it into some non-yet-existent market. These guys will take the product as well and looking to evaluates like creating wind turbines in the district because the scale of these things are so large that you couldn't possibly bring them in through the Geraldton port. So having to look at how they can modularise and manufacture it in the region as well. So very big, exciting project, just uh, a lot to a lot of detail to work through. We're talking about some pretty big proposals, uh, green ammonia plants using renewable hydrogen. So that's a lot of renewable energy projects that will need to go in the ground. And whether this gets off the ground at Nangaloo or these other projects at Okaji, does this significantly change what the Midwest landscape will look like in your mind? 
this is a significant change to uh, the way Geraldton has obviously positioned itself and views itself. We know that we have an immense amount of farmland and station land uh, as we go out east, whether you're at Okaji or Nangaloo, you know, most projects require 100 to 200,000 uh, acres of land in which to uh, place wind turbines or solar panels. And it's a matter of how that power is transferred or is it a matter of producing the ammonia out near the power source and piping it, trucking it? Is it going to be converted to fertilizer? Many, again, very technical stuff that uh, is beyond us. But I think the landscape out east with these projects would radically change. Uh, this is talking about these projects alone in their own right will require more electricity than the entire Perth metropolitan area produces uh, and, and needs to run. These are major projects that are trying to be green. So that'll change the east. Closer, though, into uh, the Geraldton coastline, what's unique about these projects is they are actually internal. They're non-emitting uh, as such. They emit some oxygen. They are quite a green uh, facility. They don't take up large landmass and heavy industry that we're used to seeing in biominerals processing. So inland and close, good. Exporting at port. Uh, there's obviously always inherent risks with exporting any gaseous or refrigerated liquid, whether it be LNG or ammonia. They need to be worked through and out east again, that uh, physical landscape change. Geraldton Mayor Shane Van Stein speaking to Joe Prendergast about how a Perth-based company called Progressive Green Solutions is partnering with two Korean companies for a huge renewable energy project in the state's Midwest and the scale of some of these projects are just mind-blowing, aren't they? If it goes ahead, the plan is to produce up to one million tonnes of green ammonia per year and the first shipments to South Korea could be as early as 2027. Quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour. And heading further north from Geraldton now, because Australia's only ocean-based barramundi farm, Cone Bay Barramundi, just off the coast of Derby in WA's Kimberley, has changed hands. Australia's largest seafood producer, Canadian-owned company Tassel, has purchased Marine Produce Australia, MPA. That's the company behind Cone Bay Barramundi. McGrath Nichols' Robert Kerman led the administration process for Marine Produce Australia and says it wasn't easy. It was a challenging administration because of the nature of the remoteness of the business, because of the position, obviously, with, with live live fish and in terms of a situation where although there was material interest in, in, in the business, we needed to get the right party that had the balance sheet strength to continue the expansion plan and saw the, the opportunity for, for, for growth. And, and pleasingly, you know, Tassel and its advisors were, were commercial and very reasonable and easy to deal with to get this successful restructure across the line. How much did Tassel pay for the business? The the external contribution from Tassel was about $8 million dollars. Uh, and pleasing in addition to that, they took on various commitments, uh, including continuity of uh, 50 local employees, which was a great result. 50 local employees. Is that all of the employees that were that were part of that Cone Bay Barramundi um, system? Correct. So all of the, 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 the local MPA fish farms uh, employees and operational employees re- retain their position. Can you give me any insights into Tassel's plans for Cone Bay Barramundi now that they've taken it over? Look, I know that Tassel have uh, plans to continue the expansion project and sort of investment the MPA had put into 
the business prior to unfortunately being placed into voluntary administration. Uh, I'm not quite sure of the exact details of, of what, when and how, but I know that they do have plans to take the business to the next level. Am I right in saying that Tassel loaned money to the business to allow Barramundi to keep being produced while the administration that, process went through? That, that's correct. I mean, without the support of the National Australia Bank and also Tassel as part of funding, we wouldn't have been able to maintain the business to then get the transaction ultimately to the line. So again, that, that, that was also one of the key things that allowed the ultimate transaction to get to the stage of settlement. Robert Kerman, he's a partner at McGrath-Nickel Restructuring. He was speaking to Alice Marshall about that $8 million sale of Cone Bay Barramundi in the state's Kimberley to Canadian company Tazzell. Now, Tazzell has been contacted about its future plans for the business, but there's been no response at this stage. 18 past 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Western Australian olive oil producers could be getting above record olive oil prices this season as reduced yields in the east and a northern hemisphere drought continue to impact supplies. At the moment, producers selling into the domestic heavy bulk market are getting between 6 to $7 a litre, when it's usually about $5.50 a litre. And it's not unreasonable to think the current price could go up another 10%. In the shops, you're paying around sort of $15 a litre for a decent drop of extra virgin olive oil. Jeremy Allen is the operations manager at Franklin River Olive Company. It's one of WA's largest olive oil producers with groves at Mindara, just north of Perth, and at Franklin in the state's Great Southern. He says he's really pleased with the oil he's getting from this season's crop. Oil in the, in the fruit has been probably up a little bit for us, which means we don't have to harvest as, you know, as much to get the same sort of volume, which has been good. There's some areas where there, there hasn't been much fruit, but given the fact that olives are sort of have a good year and a, and a bad year, biannual bearings, you can see that. In some of these some of these trees last year they were heavy and this year they're, they're not offering too much in those sections. Would you say that we're in a good or bad year? Across Australia I think we're sort of in a, a down year and I think we're probably, given that last year we, we didn't have a bumper, we were sort of average so I think it, it's evened out even though um, half of the farm probably had a good year last year and, and then this year that half that had a sleep is, you know, is now producing so it's sort of for us, it hasn't really had too much of an impact, but um, I think there's a big demand, seems to be a big demand uh, domestically for, for Australian olive oils this year, so it must be down a little bit. So across the nation, is there enough supply to meet that demand? Uh, I think there is, but I just think that there's plenty of growers that produce more than what they'll sell in a retail setting. So I think normally about 60, 65% we would sell through the retail market and then the rest will sell in bulk so that that could go to a another packer a local packer uh, within Australia or it could go it could go overseas go to Spain or to Italy but generally um, the last few years the domestic market's been strong enough to to take all of our excess excess oil. So how much stronger are you expecting that market to be this year if there is a if the supply is a little bit down? I think Given the fact that there's issues in Spain with drought and supply will be down globally, 
that'll have an impact here because we've got the imported product the price will go up you might see a little bit less of it on the shelf and then over here the margins have been pretty lean so I think I think you might find I think you have found that the prices have gone up whether it's sort of a fallout from COVID or, or whatever but we've we've found that our product 12 months ago was sort of mid-range pricing and now we're sort of one of the cheaper products on the shelf so um, prices have, have jumped up quite a bit in the last sort of 12 to 18 months and I think I think the pricing will continue to be strong the next sort of couple of years. How do you feel about there being a stronger demand with less supply? The olive industry has gone through a lot of a lot of tough years. Over the last sort of five years, the pricing has just started to to creep up. You know, we've got the costs to run a business like this. It's never going to be make a lot of money. Um, we're sort of more of a break-even sort of business. So you know, labour labour is high. Repair and maintenance, all the costs like that are high. So I think it's it's probably getting closer to where it should be to allow some of these olive farms to continue and into the future. Jeremy Allen, he's Operations Manager at Franklin River Olive Company. 22 past 12. Victoria is the country's main olive oil producing state. But Australian Olive Association CEO Michael Southen sees potential for Western Australia to take over that title this year. He says growing conditions were less than ideal for Eastern producers. We've had a, a summer just gone, which was generally mild, particularly in the eastern states, so Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria. And while that meant that we generally had good flowering and we didn't have high temperatures which affected flowering, we saw good fruit set. However, the cooler temperatures meant that the olives themselves ripened a lot more slowly than they would normally and that also meant that oil accumulation within the fruit, within the olives, was less than what we would normally expect. So by the time the olives were harvested the, uh, and processed, the oil yields have been much lower than we would normally see in our, our olives in years past. So what about for WA in South Australia? So for West Australia and South Australia, they, they had uh, more typical type summers, which were warmer, and they had very good fruit set and uh, but the fruit matured more typically like we would expect and therefore generally their oil yields were more aligned with what we would normally see so they had good good yields and good oil yields as well uh, after processing. So what will that mean for those more western producers will they kind of stand in the place of the lower yields that we're seeing over east? Yeah look I think certainly if they've got um, plenty of oil I think There'll be certainly a lot of producers potentially in the eastern states that'll be looking to make up the difference that they didn't get this year with the, the lower oil yields. So that on top of world record prices for olive oil, any producer that has any oil at all, I think this year potentially is in a, a good position to, uh, to be able to sell their oil and to get a good price for it. What region produces most of the local olive oil? Most of our production is coming out of Victoria, but it's closely followed by Western Australia. And then we have uh, South Australia and New South Wales making up pretty much the balance of the production. But of course, there's also production in Tasmania and also in Queensland. So pretty much you'll find olives grown across much of Australia, but the majority of production is centred in Victoria. Do you think WA might be able to overtake Victoria this year? 
it's possible. It's it's very possible. I'm not sure yet because I haven't seen haven't seen enough enough numbers. But look, the way the year's turned out, that that could happen. Australian Olive Association President Michael Southen speaking to Sophie Johnson. You can read more of the story. It's online right now for you on the ABC website. Just search Olive Oil Price ABC for Sophie's online story. Olive Oil Price ABC to check out Sophie's story. 25 past 12 here on the Country Hour. An update from the newsroom isn't far away, five minutes or so. But first I want to spend a little bit of time talking about working conditions in the resource sector because after shocking reports of sexual assaults and harassment on mine sites, there are hopes improved working and living conditions might see cultural change in the industry. Michelle Stanley has more. Women propositioned for sex by superiors. Women knocked unconscious in their dongers waking up with their underwear around their ankles. Women losing their jobs after speaking out against harassment at work. These were just some of the stories brought to light by the Enough is Enough report into the Western Australian fly-in, fly-out mining industry. One year on, the state government has warned the industry that if it doesn't do enough to tackle sexual harassment in the industry, the government will step in. If we don't see performance improvement, then obviously government would have to act. WA Mines and Industrial Relations Minister Bill Johnston said he'd be open to introducing mandates, including banning alcohol on all mine sites in the state and considering the use of non-disclosure agreements which are used to prevent victims speaking out. But our, our view is that the industry is ready to change and we want to work with industry, the workers, the employers, the contractors. We want to work with the entire industry to see improvement. As part of the response to recent reports into sexual assault and harassment in the mining sector, Curtin University's Centre for Transformative Work Design has been digging into what people experience on site and the statistics are pretty sobering. So if we talk about the, the more overt form of sexual harassment called unwanted sexual attention, and that pretty much speaks for itself as to what it is, about 10% of women report that they sometimes, often or very often experience that behaviour in the past 12 months and about 3% of men. Dr Sharon Parker is a world-leading researcher on the topic of work design, proactivity, mental health and job performance and she heads up that Centre for Transformative Work Design that has produced this study. The full report will be released in October but presenting to the mining industry's driving respect summit in Perth, Dr Sharon Parker silent the room going through a few of the key points. If we turn to sexist hostility and those are those sorts of comments in which you know for example men question do women have the ability to work in the sector those sort of undermining comments we found that 36 percent of women um, who completed the survey reported that they sometimes often or very often experience those behaviors and nine percent of men also so I think those findings speak to a negative culture of, sometimes it's called low-level harassment, but actually we should be not calling it that because, in fact, our research also looked at what's the impact of these behaviours. And what's really, really important is that women who are experiencing, or men and women who are experiencing sexist hostility, those individuals experience much more job dissatisfaction they're much more likely to 
to be burnt out, as much as three times more likely and also much more likely to leave. Part of this week's Driving Respect Summit was sharing what's known, but it's also about sharing examples of what's worked to improve workplace culture and reduce instances of psychosocial harm in the workplace. That's anything which could cause harm to someone's mental health, things like job demands, poor support or sexual harassment. WorkSafe Commissioner Darren Kavanagh says psychosocial harm is being treated just like any other workplace health and safety issue, like if a worker falls off a ladder and breaks their leg. Whilst it's not a physical hazard, uh, it is a hazard and we want to uh, ensure that persons conducting businesses or undertakings, employers and people in control of workplaces have systems in place to prevent those things from occurring. But back to that conversation around mandates like banning alcohol on mine sites, WorkSafe Commissioner Darren Kavanagh isn't actually convinced and he doesn't want alcohol to be the scapegoat. I think there's a range of controls that can be implemented. So I understand there's interest in conversations around alcohol. The focus on alcohol is is something of a distraction of those more beneficial controls that ought to be uh, implemented. Instead, Darren Kavanagh and Curtin University's Dr Sharon Parker say better work design needs to be the focus. The sorts of conditions in which harassment flourishes are where there's poor work design. Work design is all about the physical and mental characteristics of your job, how supported you feel, how much autonomy you have, whether your job feels meaningful. Does it have high demands, which leave you feeling burnt out and stressed out? And it's the work design which Dr Sharon Parker says is key to improving culture in the FIFO mining industry. For example, changing rosters so that people are not away for four weeks from their family, going back incredibly fatigued with a very short recovery time before they back out again. So looking at some of those sort of root causes and real challenges that FIFO workers face is really important for creating FIFO workers who don't need and want to drink as part of a recovery or a survival, you know, to, to cope with the stresses of the work. So, so I think that's what's important, is really trying to create quality work for people with good rosters, with decent shifts, bosses that support them and recognise they've got families and so on. Because when people have those sorts of work environments, we know they're much less likely to drink, take drugs, harass people, etc. So um, creating good work is, is a very good start. The Centre for Transformative Work Design will release the Mental Awareness, Respect and Safety, or MARS, landmark study in October. It's being used as a baseline for future studies and the centre will go back in 2025 to check in and see how the data has changed. Michelle Stanley with that report. It is 29 to 1. Jonathan Beale is here. What's in the news, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. A 69-year-old contractor has been jailed for bribing a WA public servant in exchange for being a awarded more than $1 million in government projects. Peter Russell Haxby paid the public servant who worked for the Department of Communities around $122,000 over six years. The district court was told Haxby was awarded a total of 16 contracts for social housing projects. An electronic system used by WA police and the courts to process people taken into custody overnight has crashed, causing major delays in courtrooms around the state. The ABC understands dozens of court appearances have been delayed today after the system crashed last night. 
State prosecutors cannot access the details of cases due to appear in court and prisoners are unable to apply for bail. And former US President Donald Trump has been charged with working to overturn the results of the 2020 election. On January the 6th, 2021, his supporters attacked the US Capitol in a bid to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden's victory. The former president, who's running again next year, is due in court on Thursday. Special counsel Jack Smith says his office will seek a speedy trial. More news, Belinda, at one. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. Appreciate that. It is 27 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. And between now and the news at one, we're going to head to Katanning. It's a Wednesday, so it's the Katanning sheep and lamb market today. And prices are down across all categories at Katanning today. It was a similar story at the Mouche sheep sale yesterday. So, look, uh, I think it's Terry that's going to go through the details of that. Terry Birkin going through the actual market details. But look, we're also going to catch up with Rod Bushell shortly. He manages the Katanning sale yards. So he is right there where the action is in terms of catching up with the buyers and the sellers and just knowing, you know, trends that are going on at the moment and what might happen over the next few months because it sounds like Western Australian sheep farmers could be offered lower prices for the remainder of this year. We'll get Rod Bushell's thoughts shortly. First, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow with you this afternoon. Caroline, there's a bit going on in the Southwest Land Division. There's um, patches of rain. It sort of started early hours of this morning along the South Coast. What's the latest on the situation today? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's correct, Belle. Uh, in the southwest corner there, uh, as the cold front approached and ahead of the cold front, uh, there were some thunderstorms that formed and they were moving from the northwest and pretty much trained over each other. And uh, we got some uh, decent falls in the southwest, getting sort of around that 60, 70 millimetres in a couple of locations uh, over that short period of time. So uh, we did put out a severe thunderstorm warning uh, for that heavy rainfall and the, the warning is continuing and has been extended up along the west coast towards Lancelin as well as that cold front is approaching. It's got a nice sharp edge on it and we could see some damaging wind gusts from uh, the thunderstorms in that uh, leading edge of the cold front as it moves through as well. Um, in the southwest uh, where we've had that heavy rainfall, there is still a chance that we could still see um, some, some heavy falls uh, into the afternoon um, but at the moment sort of away from that Bustleton area there, it does look as though the main part has just moved towards uh, the northeast a little bit. Um, um, continuing for uh, the remainder of the Southwest Land Division. So we've got the cold front. It is a pretty um, upright uh, standing uh, north-south-ish kind of cold front uh, and it's, it's going to sort of move right through or sweep right through the Southwest Land Division uh, during the remainder of today and into tonight. Um, so as I mentioned, the Southwest Corner has had uh, some locations around that 60 to 70 millimetres, but most of the areas have probably been more around that 20 to 40 millimetres in the Southwest corner as we head further north and south about Durian Bay down through to Katanning and across to Bremer Bay 10 to 20 millimetres with isolated 30 millimetres and then as we go further into the southwest land division we're looking around that 3 to 10 millimetre mark maybe a little bit more as we head a little bit further along the coast towards Geraldton there's already showers uh, all the way up the coast right up to Geraldton as well um 
Inland, um, detached from the cold front, uh, there is some thunderstorms in the northeast of the southwest land division. So that sort of sort of northeast of Southern Cross uh, area there, um, there has been some, but not a lot of rainfall out of it. But they will continue, and as that cold front moves east, those uh, inland thunderstorms will continue to move east as well. Um, over the next couple of days behind the cold front. So coming into by Thursday morning, there is also an embedded low uh, with the cold front and that's going to move uh, along the, the south coast. And by tomorrow morning, uh, the cold front and the remnants um, of the low will be um, out of the southwest land division, but it's going to be a good vigorous south southerly airstream and a cold southerly airstream as well. So we'll start seeing cooler conditions, uh, maximum and quite cold nights, minimum temperatures um, from Thursday onwards. Um, coming into Thursday, most of the southwest land division maximum temperatures will be around that 10 to 15 degree mark and uh, continuing into Friday before we start seeing a little bit of a warming closer to 18 to 20 degrees through the northern parts of the southwest land division still remaining pretty cool over southern parts. In regards to minimum temperatures um, from Friday mor Thursday morning, Friday morning, there's going to be areas of sub two degrees, even getting below zero degrees for most inland parts of the southwest land division. So we could start seeing areas of frost Thursday morning, Friday morning, um, and even into Saturday morning, though uh, Thursday and Friday are probably the coldest mornings as well. Um, and then just back on the rainfall, sorry, with the um, the low, the remnants, uh, the southerly airstream by Thursday, most of these showers will be confined more to southeastern parts parts of the southwest land division along the south coast and just some remnants in the onshore airstream along the west coast. So most of those northern and northeastern inland parts, uh, showers will have cleared by sort of sunrise or early morning on Thursday and then on Friday and Saturday and into Sunday, we've got a ridge pushing through, which is really just going to push the showers right uh, to the very coastal southwest corner, if any showers at all. Um, further afield, looking ahead, uh, the next cold front uh, looks to be early next week, later on Monday into Tuesday, but it is only a week to getting to moderate cold front at this point of time. So most of the showers will be confined sort of to the southwest Perth to Albany area with lighter falls getting inland um, at this point looking further afield. Wow, there is a bit going on in the southwest land division. How is this all affecting the northern parts and eastern parts of the state? Yeah, so if I start a little bit further, just let's start with the Kimberley and sort of the the no north interior. Uh, we're looking at clear and mostly sunny conditions through that area there uh, for the outlook period and um, some warmer temperatures through that area. We're looking at sort of two to six degrees above average. Um, a little bit closer towards the northwest. Um, so western parts of the Pilbara into the Gascoyne and remaining southern parts. The cold front, given the um, strength and uh, how north and north-south standing it is, uh, is going to move through uh, and bring showers um, to the to the Gascoyne and to that West Pilbara, so even Exmouth and sort of just a, getting into western parts of the Pilbara, um, coming into overnight tonight and tomorrow, uh, getting right through into the goldfields and southeastern parts of the state as well, so the Eucla, um and the southern interior. Uh, so it, it is uh, quite a significant cold front affecting sort of that southwestern um, half of the state, really. Uh, 
falls uh, as you get further north are, are going to decrease quite a bit. Southern parts of the Gascoyne potentially around uh, could still see two to uh, ten millimetres, and there is some thunderstorms around there at the moment as well, uh, well ahead of the cold front, which is just bringing some light um, rainfall totals through southern Gascoyne and into the gold fields. Uh, and as you get further north into that West Pilbara area uh, and further sort of north of Mekathara, uh, we're looking at sort of less than two millimetres um, through there over the next couple of days. And then coming into Thursday, we see the, the cold front, just the remnants of the cold front bringing a shower or two, but it really clears up uh, coming into um, Friday and Saturday with the ridge becoming the dominant feature. And as that ridge becomes the dominant feature, we'll start seeing a southeast easterly surge uh, dominate uh, northern parts of the state um, coming into the, the weekend and early next week, Bell. So does this mean we have a full list of warnings this afternoon, Caroline? Yeah, there's a full, uh, sorry, a few warnings out. So starting in the southwest, there's a severe thunderstorm warning for the southwest and uh, lower west, south coastal and great southern districts with that heavy rainfall and damaging wind gusts. There's also a sheep graziers warning for most parts of the southwest land division. Um, and then there's the uh, marine wind warning um, along the south coast and all the way up to the Gascoyne coast. And there is gale winds uh, possible uh, along the coast as well with that warning. And then there is also a fire weather warning for the north uh, Goldfields uh, district uh, there with the winds are, are quite fresh uh, and vigorous through that area today. Well, thank you for going through all those details, Caroline. Appreciate that. It Cheers, is Belle. 19 to 1 and Richard Hudson here now to look at the rainfall figures. Yeah, and up until 9am, for the bulk of the state, there was no rain at all. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, the top was three mils at Murchison. That's in the Gascoyne, but nothing worth reading out anywhere else. In the southwest land division forecast districts, tiny bit around in the central west with Balgarda and Perinjury Airport recording three. Carnamar had five, but that was over five days, so that's, uh, that's just plain cheating. And then in the southwest, a lot more, as Caroline was just saying. Acton Park had 42, Beetle up 25, Boyan up north 6, Bustleton Airport had 13, and then just down the road, the Bustleton Shire rain gauge tipped out 73. Cape Lewin had 8, Cape Naturalist 17, Chapman Hill Road 35, Kawaram up 32, Donnybrook had between 6 and 14, Doyle Road 30, Four Acres 13, Jindong 63, Carrydale 20, Manjimup had 17 to 18 mils, Margaret River 24, Millian up 14, Nan up 20, Northcliffe 12, Quinnan up 11, Rosabrook 40, Scott River 22, Shannon 11, Vass Highway 15, Warner Glen 18, Willie Abrupt 36, Windy Harbour 5 and Yanmar 27. In the southern coastal region, Denmark's Deepherd Station topped it with four but nothing else. And in the central wheat belt, there was nothing over a mill. And then in the great southern region, there was no rain at all. It'll just be interesting to see what drifts across in the next uh, 24 and 48 hours. But um, it sounds like WA sheep farmers are in for some lower prices for the next few months, possibly even for the remainder of the year. It'll be interesting to see how things fare. That's mainly because what I'm hearing is some of the processes are just not that desperate for supplies. Shortly, Tracy Kilner is going to go through all the prices from this morning's sheep sale at Katanning. Numbers were up about 1,000 on last week. 
And as you heard yesterday, numbers at Mushay were well up. That was one of the reasons why prices ended up dropping around $10 a head across the board. But Rod Bushell manages the Catanning sale yards, and he says it was a similar story this morning with prices dropping. I mean, every category seemed to come off a bit today, so um, which is, yeah, not a good sign because the, the better sheep have been sealing reasonably well, but even they came off today. What would you say is the main reason for the price drop? Well, it's the old basic economics. There's supply and demand. All the processes were in attendance, but they didn't get that excited when it came to the bidding. Were some of them buying very little? Have they already got enough sheep and lambs? I think so. Everything I hear up at the yards is that they're, they're pretty much fully booked out and well into the future as well. I mean, they do still buy out of the yards. They always allow, but they... Um, were buying a lot less than they normally would. One of the processors said they couldn't buy because they had a a cold storage issue. They did end up buying some in the end for their paddocks anyway, so um, it could have been worse than it really was. How long do you think this is going to go on for? Well, anyone I speak to up there that is in the know said it's going to go for a while because I think the numbers at Mushay reflected um, what's going to happen into the future. There's, There's a a lot of lambs on the ground and there's a, once they start getting weaned, there'll be ewes and um, lambs being turned off. So the numbers I can see only going up, not down. So all I can see is the problem either getting worse or not changing anyway at the moment. Do you think we might have lower prices than what farmers have been experiencing in the last few months? Could we have lower prices for the next few months, even six months? Uh, look, I hate to predict at the moment. I'm hoping not because I'm in that same boat. But mm. um, I can't see at the moment they're going to improve. They, I'm sure they will improve once they free the supply the supply chain up a bit. But I, no one's predicting that they're going to go up to any extent. Are you having any chats with the store buyers, Rod? The the people who buy store sheep and and then fatten them up and then sell them to the processors themselves. Yeah, well, I did this morning with one in particular and um, same problem. They've got all these sheep that are all up weight-wise for air freight and they've got nowhere to send them. So they're at the yards, but they're not buying anything. I mean, normally they'd be buying uh, quite a few each week because they're turning them off, but none of them can get them turned off. So they're sitting on three or 4,000 sheep ready to go and got nowhere to go with them. Eventually those farmers are still going to have to sell them, aren't they? Well, that's the worry is that yeah, we're all going to be in the boat. We're going to have to lighten our numbers, especially as we head into the summer. And I'm a bit frightened that they might you know, get dumped at the yards and and the demand won't be there for them. Just in the next six months or so, obviously, we're not painting a rosy picture, but it's not such a rosy picture further down the track either, is it? Lots of discussions at various farmer meetings about the future of the live sheep trade. What's the discussion been like today at the Catanning Sale Yards about you know, the next four, five years, etc. Well, I haven't had too many discussions that far out, but I don't think anyone's holding their breath at the minute because as the boats stop going, I mean, it's only going to get worse. I know that's a year or so down the track, but it's having a having an effect on people already. I mean, it's only anecdotal, but I've heard of several farmers um, that are cutting their numbers drastically and some that are going to get rid of the sheep altogether. Do you think there'll be many of the producers will get out altogether? No, I don't. I don't think they'll get out altogether. Or there won't be many getting out altogether, but I'm certain there'll be a few.
sheep are a lot of work and a lot of times of the year and um, and if you're not getting paid for it, it's just not worth having them. Rod, the ACCC has concerns that if there isn't a live sheep trade, the processors will just have too much power and they've made some recommendations about how the handling of the phase-out of live sheep should be done. Do you have those concerns as well, that the, the few companies we have in WA will then just have everything to themselves and there won't be enough competition? Well, we all think that way, but I'd be surprised if they, um, they really murder the industry because, I mean, they've got to exist as well, so they don't want the numbers. I mean, it might be tough now for the next six months or so, but I'm certain that they won't let it get to a point where a lot of people are getting out of shape because down the track that's going to affect them. Katanning Sale Yards Manager Rod Bushell with Richard Hudson. 12 to 1. As you just heard, the ACCC has made a submission to the panel that's working on the best way to transition out of the live sheep trade by sea. And in that submission, it's raising concerns about reduced market competition and the risk of collusive behaviour between competitors. Mick Keogh is Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Mick, why were you so keen to make a submission to the panel? The ACCC has had a long-term surveillance of the competitiveness of markets, particularly for livestock. We did a major study a couple of years ago into the beef and cattle markets, and what was evident from that was some concerns from producers about the competitiveness of livestock sale yards. And we have also had some concerns expressed by sheep producers in Western Australia in the past about activities at particular sale yards in Western Australia. So we're conscious of the risks to competition that exist in, uh, say, for example, the sale yards environment, but then aware that the um, cessation of live sheep exports would remove some of that competition from the market in Western Australia. So we were keen to highlight that authorities may need to consider that in terms of how they manage the process of transition away from live exports if that's the policy decision government takes. Yes, well here in Western Australia the three key turn-off areas are sending sheep to the eastern states to the processors or to live export. So you take one of those out of the equation, you're only left with two. What are your concerns in that scenario from a competition perspective? Well, certainly we've heard in the past from growers who are concerned about the lack of competition between buyers at sale yards, um, and that's exacerbated by some of the practices that we see where a commission agent might be operating at those sale yards on behalf of multiple processes. So that further reduces competition, if you like. So rather than having two or three processes active at the sale yards, it may be only one or two buyers active on their behalf. And then if you take out any competition from uh, live exporters, that further diminishes competition. And so that really does um, uh, need consideration in terms of how the market is managed going forward. And how how would you address that scenario then? Well, in our cattle and beef market study, we understood the efficiencies that a commission buyer creates 
um, you know, you don't, if, if, if every single processor had to go to every sale yard, um, there would be significant costs for them, particularly if they're only buying small numbers of animals. So we understand commission buyers generate efficiencies. Uh, we recommended the creation of a buyer's register at the sale yard. So in other words, where those commission buyers were buying on behalf of multiple processors, they would indicate that at the start of the sale via a register so that producers uh, offering their stock for sale would know exactly what the situation was at the moment that's not transparent. Now that doesn't solve the problem completely, but at least bringing some transparency to the situation is is better than the situation that prevails at the moment. So, I mean, we haven't mentioned the word yet, but what this all boils down to and the key concern here is collusion. That's correct. Where, uh, for example, major processors or, or, or others are agreeing to share the market. In other words, we'll buy this pen, you buy that pen, that sort of behaviour. And, and there's always been allegations of that occurring and particularly where there's a reduction in the number of buyers, the risk of that we would consider to to increase as a result. So just going and picking up on the points you mentioned earlier, if we had that register that you were talking about, would that sort of uh, ease your mind about the possibility of going down that, that road of collusion between some of the players in the industry? Well, it would certainly inform sheep producers about the nature of competition they would see in the market and they could make their decision accordingly. So at the moment, those arrangements aren't transparent. It's understood by some people who this buyer is operating for, but it's not absolutely clear. So, you know, if we if we banned commission buyers, for example, that might result in um, costs that people wouldn't want, and it may in fact result in some of the smaller prices not going to particular markets. So that isn't a good way to do it, but um, certainly we've thought that um, increasing the transparency of those arrangements at least makes sure uh, wool growers and sheep producers are informed what's happening in the market and can make their own decisions about whether to to support that market or to go elsewhere. Mick, what does the ACCC think about uh, this particular policy of phasing out a trade, a, a legitimate trade in this country? Uh, well, that's very clearly um, a policy decision governments make. Um, we simply made the point that it will affect competition in the market and that needs to be thought about in terms of whatever arrangements are put in place. Mick, it's good to talk to you. Thank you, Belinda. Mick Keogh, he is the Deputy Chair of the ACCC. It is six minutes to one o'clock and taking you to Katanning very shortly for the results of today's sheep market. First, though, the state government has decided to invest $15.3 million into small-scale water security projects in the Manjimup Pemberton area. That money was previously allocated for the controversial Southern Forests Irrigation Scheme, which was scrapped towards the end of last year. Regional Development Minister Don Punch says they've decided to back recommendations made by the Southern Forests Irrigation Reference Group. So in response to the report, um, the government has now provided a response that essentially uh, accepts the recommendations of that group that we should be looking at a couple of options. One is to support um, small-scale farm infrastructure on a localised basis to improve adaptability to water use and, uh, and efficiency of water use. 
and looking at issues around better measurement of water usage uh, and water stream volumes so that we know what we're dealing with in terms of surface water runoff. Is this a new 15.3 million or was it money that was previously put aside for the Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme? Yeah, it's money that's previously been put in, put aside. It was for the purpose of that large-scale infrastructure. So we're repurposing that now to support growers directly and to support better um, understanding of uh, water volumes in the stream areas through the area and what the future might be in terms of water supply. Are there any of the other projects that you can mention? We're looking actively at whether we can bring Doppler radar into the area. We're undertaking that discussion with the Commonwealth Government. That's to help improve um, really forecasting and understanding of weather patterns and rainfall. Uh, Again, to improve real-time adaptive use of water within the area. A few other recommendations in the report as well, um, but that essentially is is the guts of um, what we're doing. And we've maintained the commitment of 15.3 million uh, to the area to help support long-term water sustainability into the future. But this is going to be a process of working with local growers on an ongoing basis and working up options uh, at a very local level to make sure that people have certainty as far as we can um, provide it in in an atmosphere of climate change. Minister for Regional Development, Don Punch with Ali Honeybone and talking about water security funding in the southwest. The minister says the $15.3 million is available now and Deepert is ready to work with interested farmers in that Manjimup Pemberton area. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for the world today. Trump charges. The former president and leading Republican candidate for next year's US election is facing yet another criminal indictment. The death of a food delivery driver in Sydney prompts a fresh outcry for better safety standards. And has a small outback Queensland town cracked Australia's housing crisis? We head to Thargaminda to find out. Those stories and more from right across the country and around the globe coming up on The World Today. 4,686 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Catanning Market today. That is up 1,190 from last week. But as you heard earlier, prices were down across all categories. Tracy Kilner, take us through the details. Hi, Belinda. A quality lineup of prime lambs eased 15 to $25, while plain small store sheep were difficult to sell, realising minimal values. Mutton shared the same fate, with only one processor vying for each category. Lightweight lambs eased, selling to $30. Heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight sold from $10 to $55. Trade weight lambs made from $30 to $75. And the heavy lambs sold up to $90 a head. A highlight of the sale was a run of quality young merino weathers carrying a fleece, selling up to $82 a head. Store ewes made from $15 to $45, medium weight sold from $30 to $70, and the heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight returned $58 to $75 a head. Ram lambs made from $42 to $70, and mature rams sold from $10 to $55 a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details. In response to the ACCC's concerns about remaining competitors in the sheep market sort of 
uh, setting prices, having too much power if the live sheep trade ever comes to an end and the suggestion that a register of um, buyers might be a good idea. David says a register is no good to a producer who puts his livestock on a truck the day before the sale. Uh, This too, the ACCC is years behind. Collusion has been going on for years. Visit Muche any time and if you are observant, you will see it happening right in front of you. Thank you for your text today. Great to hear from you. On the ABC, right across Western Australia, it is time for the latest news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.